Hey, it's Eric. Welcome to Dead Cat. I'm here with Tom Dotan, and we've got a great guest. Super excited. Antonio Garcia Martinez, author of Chaos Monkeys. You have a crypto startup, Facebook exec at one point, and very exec. aware. Oh, is exec overstating things? I think title inflation is pretty standard <laughs> exactly. in, uh, in tech journalism. So by all means. <laughs> no, we're going to talk about the managerial class. So, you know, you have okay. to be in management there. Reporter yeah. trick. You call somebody exec if you want to sound like your sourcing is higher level. <laughs> That's exactly why they do it. That's right. Yeah. And that can I, anything be from like product manager to director to any anything that isn't like I was hired yesterday is like, oh, an exec just told me that this is the strategy. That's right. So if you were a source for anyone, you were definitely an exec. Okay, well, all right, I'll take it. I feel like our goal with this show is just to sort of understand what's going on on Twitter and like the cultural <laughs> war, you know, like I, I feel like in classic sort of fiefdom division, it's like literally we had, you know, Alex Stamos on last week and it's sort of like he's basically on our side of this whole like free speech internet moderation war and we're asking him, like, what's the best version of the other side? Like, that's as close as we can get to sort of direct engagement with the other side. In your game, like, you and I sort of had it out, I think, on free speech a little while ago. Yep. And so, I mean, my first question, this is such a big one I feel bad throwing to you, but, like, what is going on? Or, like, how would you articulate this sort of reporter versus Musk sort of thing or like based versus whatever, like explain to the audience, like what is this conflict that's happening? So I, I wouldn't presume to speak for Elon or know what's going yeah. through his head, obviously, but I, I have commented, I think a lot in the past on the tech media divide to some degree, because I think I'm one of the few people who spanned it to some degree. Um, I was one of the few people kind of dumb enough to actually write a book about my time inside tech. And then like, I actually did fact check reporting for Wired shortly after that and was kind of a journalist type figure. Um, yeah. A, a, and you had a, a sub stack. And, and I, had a sub, I had a sub stack as well. And I had my own podcast and whatnot. So I, I've played a little bit on the media side of things, which, again, is pretty unusual for tech people. And then definitely very unusual for media people is actually building things in tech. So I've seen both sides of it. I do think there's like a two cultures thing going on in which they have just morally foundational different views of the world. And then there's also a lot of like theming going on. By theming, I mean the other side seems like this monolithic other that is acting in some dark confederacy <laughs> against what is true and good in the world, which I think is just a natural state that humans think about like the other tribe. And I just think it's, it's wrong very often. And there's an acknowledgement of power on both sides, right? Like the reporters look at the tech entrepreneurial class and see them, you know, exorbitantly wealthy or at least they have access to capital. And then on the other side, I imagine they're looking at us and saying, you know, we have some sort of magical control over the narrative. And well, it's the game of, of you're the elite. No, you're the elite. Like the right. one thing you don't want to be right now is an elite. You're, I am you not know. an elite, by the way. Just everyone <laughs> knows I am not an elite. I'm not no one has ever admitted to being an elite. Anymore. I'm like, give it up. Like, why, how can I be like you? You know, it's mm. just like you get to... Uh, I feel like if you get to write but not be blamed for being a journalist, that's sort of the best situation to be in at the moment. If um, you can have an entire podcast of millionaires and billionaires railing against the elite, then there literally is no such thing as an well, elite. So here I would disagree. And this gets back to the comment about the managerial elite. Elite obviously means different things, right? But in right. the context of like America right now, almost 2023... I made a reference to Burnham, and Burnham was actually a collaborator of Trotsky. He started as a communist, actually, and ended up on the right. And he cited a lot on the right, and it was very formative for, like, sort of mid-century conservative thought. His book is called The Managerial Elite, which is kind of a classic. 
Mark Andreessen has been a big booster of this book recently too. Lots of yeah, it's it's big topic of conversation. Yeah, I think it was in the book list that he tweeted. The key thing to understand, and I, this is where I think elite's an overloaded term to use a tech term. The elite that James Burnham was referring to was not sort of the WASP elite that ran the U.S. for however many decades, or was not the sort of bourgeois capitalist elite that Marx railed against, for example, or that Burnham used to rail against in his in his Marxist phase. The idea was that there'd be this sort of middle tier technocratic side to society that would form its own interest group, right? Traditional capitalists, right, like the, the original robber barons of, you know, Vanderbilt and Carnegie and whatnot, they were the elite. They were the founder. They were the management team. They were the capital. They were everything, right? And the dynamic that you see today in which you often have a middle management layer that is politically of one mindset and the founding class that is another, right? Like a, a lot of these blow up. I mean, you saw it, I mean, for God's sake, at the Washington Post that they're all hands that devolved into a screaming match or whatever, right? There's a delta, and I think it's partially generational as well, by the way, just mm-hmm. to add more complexity to this already totally. muddled thinking. But there's a delta there between someone who went to an elite school, like an Ivy League school or Stanford or whatever, and then takes their place in the firmament as a middle management person at a large company. And then there's the founding class employee who often didn't have that background or rebelled against that background. They didn't go to Goldman or McKinsey when they got out of school, right? They did some weird little thing that grew into this massive thing, and now they're responsible for this. This is sort of how you have a situation where Elon seems to not be blaming Jack Dorsey for what happened at Twitter, but blaming the Twitter employees. Maybe you disagree, right? I mean, it's or maybe that's just incoherent, but it's hard to understand how you could not blame the CEO of a company, but have this idea that basically the employees went off and, and, and did whatever they want. Or you're sort of rolling your eyes at that. So No, I mean, look, I admire your attempt to try to put some like ideological coherence behind what's going on here, because it does seem to be fairly reactive and, and arbitrary to the moment of who feels like they're attacked. But I, do, I think it's interesting to put it in like Marxist terms, because what we're talking about essentially is a internecine war between, you know, middle class or professional managerial class and management. So there really isn't almost any blue-collar worker to speak of here, which is why this is so, you know, it's based on so many That's sensitivities. That's what makes it so fun. We and just, the stakes seem so incredibly low, right? You know, no one's livelihood is really at stake here. The cultural divide between, I don't know, sort of the Mark Andreessen's, David Sachs of the world and the reporter class, like, is this just going to keep accelerating or like what bridges, what bridges this? Again, you're, you're citing specific individuals, some of whom I know, and so I, I don't want to speak for them. And I, and I think the divide goes deeper. Like, it's not just a few, they might be louder about it, but I think there is a divide between the way builders think about the world and the way that media people think about the world. It's just different. Is this shape rotators? Uh, word no, cells? no, 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 no. I oh, mean, I, think... I never want to talk about that again. <laughs> <laughs> why, don't you, why don't you lay out to me as a, as a builder, as a founder, what, yeah. what, is the, what is the view of the world? I mean, that is so distinct from, at the very least, journalists, but maybe the broader public. So I had lunch with uh, uh, a tech reporter that I think all of us here probably knows, and I won't call him out by name. It's a guy that I kind of know personally and have known before I went, before this whole war or whatever you want to call it started. But it still seems as if we're talking past each other. And I think here's how I see it. Builders, they can come across as potentially naive or insincere or too earnest. And I think particularly because a lot of reporters tend to come from the East Coast just to make a regional, just to make a a big regional generalization. Mm -hmm. Earnest proclamations of like the excitement of building come off as like naive and dumb and childish. Mm -hmm. And I think... There's a number of inputs that Silicon Valley, and by this I mean more the mentality of Silicon Valley. It's no longer a place. It's really an attitude. A lot of the inputs you need to make a Silicon Valley work 
some of them are a little weird and they're not the inputs you have in other powerful industries. So a childish sense of wonder, this sort of reflexes desire to sort of disrupt everything, no matter what. A sort of engineering solutionism that everything seems to have an engineering solution. Many of these, which by the way, I think are legitimate critiques of the culture. I think some of these things are a little bit like, I understand why they need to exist, but it also means that the view of the world's a little bit incomplete, right? Yes. Okay. Now to create the conflict. I mean, as clearly a member of the media class, yeah. I feel like the media class is much more optimistic about the builders. Like there's no, deni- no there, there's no denial. <laughs> no We're searching for positive tech things. Like there was That's not true at all, Eric. That Ryan is not true. That is I'm not true at all. I'm this one or Eric. I'm, <laughs> no, 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 I'm going to land on this wrong. I, I feel like yeah. in their domain, there are no reporters like, I mean, there are, but like there, there's a total acceptance that sort of CS type, the Mark Zuckerberg type is like going to build sort of tech companies. I think there is no respect that there is any sort of expertise in policy or like this is where the content moderation fight breaks down so much. Musk declares, we're just going to follow the law. This is the framework. They're going to follow the law. He says it over and over again. Every expert, whether it's media people who have focused on it or people at Stanford or whatever, says this is ridiculous. And my sentiment was always, as soon as Elon has to literally engage with this and think about it, there's no way he's going to just follow the law, which is literally what we're seeing to happen now. But why does the whole world have to suffer through his naivete on this, just being so arrogant? But why, why is it naive? I, in terms of, and again, He's I don't not pro- following the law, like right now. Mm. He, he's, fo- he's following the American Free Speech Standard, which is a Brandenburg v. Ohio, you know, imminent lawless action standard, he, which is what typically rules free speech places in this country. He is following the law. In America, you're allowed to have the swastika, right? He banned... Kanye over the swastika. In America, it is legal. Like the jet tracking is put out by the government, I believe. Like, Mm. and he's banning that from Twitter, right? Uh, I think I think doxing is dangerous, actually. But is it again? It's not against the law. Okay, let me just lay out my view. I don't want to be reactive to Elon's view because I don't claim to have insight into Elon's view. Well, the the question is whether they're following freedom of speech. One thing I've been very consistent on this. In fact, I have a Wired piece in 2017. I forget the exact title, but basically saying this is when the whole content moderation regime was kind of spinning up. And I have to say, like, I don't often do this, but like I was right. Two things. One, it's going to be impossible to implement. It's going to be impossible to actually fairly implement at scale any sort of oracle of truth, whatever you call it, disinformation, misinformation, basically trying to make things right in an editorial way online is just not going to be technically and operationally possible. Mm -hmm. One, which it hasn't been. And then two, if you give that much power and again, I kind of come from that world. I've worked at a company like Facebook. If you give basically like the effective de facto Supreme Court of free speech is inside a closed door conference room at Twitter or at Facebook or wherever, that is not a good development. You don't want Facebook to necessarily have that power. And if they do have that power, that will be either captured by politics or just, and by politics, I mean either the left versus right or just internal politics. This guy is politically ascendant inside Facebook and he has a certain policy and this other guy has a different view or girl or whatever. And then due to the internal politics, one side wins out or the other. And it's just going to be unsustainable going forward. And, and in my opinion, that's what's happened. Like, ask yourself this. Are we safer now? Are, is there more truth online than before? Thanks to this whole content matter. Has it worked? No, no. The answer is, of course not. And, and I mean, to the Facebook right. side specifically, I mean, I think one of the biggest failings of the media and just a general multi-year embarrassment on the part of the media was the way that we covered 
Facebook in the wake of the 2016 election. I thought it was story after story that didn't hold up, that right. over We said there was a moral panic things. on here. And, and yeah, it, it was absolutely a moral panic. And I think that actually gets maybe a little bit more to the specific mindset differences between entrepreneurs and journalists or, or the media or whatever, is the assignation of moral intent. And who is like on the side of what is morally correct? Is it more moral to like advance humanity and create new things? Or is it more moral to like bring down the bad actors that they view uh, as responsible for any of society's ills? And I actually think if you view things through those two lenses, it's not completely incompatible. You just need to decide like who is on the side of, you know, whether it's better to try to push things forward at all costs or to kind of like sit there and ruminate over things and criticize people, maybe on good grounds. And, it, you know, I don't know. It's a tough one. I, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's definitely the case that there's a certain accelerationism inside the tech world that by default stomps on the gas. Like, unless there's a good reason, faster, right? And I think most people don't look at it. Again, that's one of the unique inputs for the tech side. One thing I do want to clarify, just to finish up the thought in terms of my views on content moderation, because I, the instant, like the people I've argued with, including Stamos, by the way, and other people in his organization around this whole issue. Renee, yeah. And, and Renee, for example, I've had a bunch of screaming arguments over, is that like, oh, so you're a free speech absolutist or absolutist. Like, no, I am not. <laughs> I am not at all. For starters, there, again, there's the American free speech standard in which if you invoke violence or cause violence or have doxing, out you go instantly. And then secondly, what I would call sort of common sense decorum, like, no porn, no hyper-violent video, obviously going after child predators, right? There's lots of content that you would go after. And that I'm, and in fact, there's a whole chapter in Chaos Monkeys in which I, it's basically a love song to the teams at but Facebook who do exactly that. huge categories. You're going to be like hate speech. I mean, that is one of the key ones people are fighting over. I mean, the swastika thing, doxing, like these are all the, Elon is fight, facing all the things that people wanted moderated and that free speech would allow. And so, just invoking free speech over and over again and then saying, well, of course you would want to moderate that makes it, I just feel like the arguments have been disingenuous. Why wrap yourself in American law if you're not actually going to use that as the reference point? Like nobody is, Kanye's not going to jail for anything he said. Like nobody's going to jail. Like right now you can go online and follow the Elon jet tracker things off Twitter. They're legal. Yeah, but in his case, and again, I really don't want to speak for him because it's not like I'm his lawyer. There was a case of, from what I understand, obviously I haven't confirmed it myself, an actual in-person harassment of his child. And if they come after your family, it's a whole different story, right? I've got children. If they came right. after my and family, it, it would be a different story. And, right? and that that speaks to the level that we've, on the one hand, the Facebook side is sort of the bureaucracy, right? Which journalists, myself included, you know, we're born to criticize the bureaucracy. That's sort of the funny thing. Normally, I feel like, that's sort of big, you know, uh, anyway, but there's the bureaucracy but, but just, or just there's the sort of individual action of Musk. Oh, OK. But, but just to quote one thing there, Eric, I mean, and again, this is, I think, one thing that distinguishes because earlier you were saying, oh, you know, the media is a cheerleader for tech. I think that hasn't been true in like 10 years since, you know, David Pogue was reviewing gadgets and no, most I, tech reporting I, yeah. was like gadget reviews. Tech is definitely negative now. I don't want to miss. Right. I'm saying tech reporting. that when there's interesting yes. building and builders are doing it like. I'm hyping up generative AI right now. People want a positive. Oh, I'm tearing thesis. it down. Everyone should read my latest story people about GPT three not being what Like people the media think. would love things to hype up. Look at it this way. This, and it's a bigger conversation. I think the nature of journalism, capital J journalism, is actually changing in a big way, and that's what's really going on. And we're just talking about the specific, like symptoms that we see of it. But I think this business of accountability journalism, speaking truth to power, um, whatever the Mencken quote that Kara likes all the time whatever it is, uh, comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. Yeah. I don't know that that's sort of like, look at crypto, for example. The sort of media Borg has tried to find 
hostile stories about crypto, specifically about, for example, Coinbase, an American company that's about the squeakiest and cleanest crypto company you can name. And the generational villain, the Madoff level scandal was like hiding in plain sight and in fact got invited to the New York Times conference. Totally. Right. How Wait, could when you say invited to the New York Times conference, you're talking about the recent conversation. Yes. With, yeah. Yes. With, with, they did a good uh, journalism Aaron Ross Sorkin. Yes. Correct. Well, I mean, I that mean, was supposed to be like an opportunity. I mean, it, it was it was an embarrassing moment for him. He he looked like a criminal spilling water on himself and lying, you know, to a point that it was part of his indictment. I mean, I mean Coindesk was I mean, the media embarrassed itself and was blind FTX. Oh, yeah. Said yeah. That. There's no but, I agree with you 100 percent about but that. But Coin, Coindesk helped flag it. You know, the, yes. yeah, the media is imperfect. It's like an organism. It's it's just. But, hold on, I, but Coindesk is an industry rag, right? Like they broke the story. Right. But the, they're, they're media outlet. I mean, they're okay, specialists. But, okay. You I don't, don't know. Get, Look, we don't get I, any credit for that. I mean, it's just sort of. Uh, it's not that democracy dies in darkness, people, right? It's a different set of people, right? Yeah. Here, here, here's what I think is really going on. Okay. I think capital J journalism, and, I, and I've published pieces about this, and I'm not the only one who's observed this, but I think capital J journalism, the eight, call it what, I guess now almost a century of journalism, ad supported, which everyone thinks is evil, it's actually good in many ways, in which you have relatively objective both sides journalism, right? The sort of you know, Woodward and Bernstein, you know, Watergate style stuff. That was a product of a business model. Macy's needed the widest, most nonpartisan, you know, audience to actually advertise with. And there's a little bit of ideological stuff there as well. If you go back to 19th century journalism, of course, it was very different. It was more like it is now. It's Substacks, right? It's, it's pamphleteers. It's, you know, an openly political press Democrat, totally. which was, right? And that model was both better and worse in some senses. It, it was better in the sense that, well, there's no pretending to be objective, which I don't think you actually can be as mm-hmm. hard as you try. Sure. On the flip side, the political culture was way more volatile and violent than it was today, right? There wasn't this common, I mean, hell, there was a civil war in the middle of the 19th century, right? And so I, I think it's politically very volatile and dangerous to go down that road as well. Not that there's anything I think we can do about it. I think the old journalism is basically dead. And those who are pretending like it still exists, right? I mean, I don't think the New York Times even pretends anymore. They themselves have said they're basically a collection of juicy narratives, which is fine. That's perfectly fine. And that's really what most people would actually pay for. Most people actually don't pay for truth unless your livelihood depends on truth, which is why the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, FT are doing okay because business people need those. The space between the New York Times and I worked at Bloomberg. I interned at the New York Times. No lots of people both. I just think the tech people for this narrative want them to be so far apart. They're not so far apart. I mean, Bloomberg people, successful ones, go to the New York Times. Like, they're very, the pipeline to the New York Times is through the wall. Well, no, but Eric, I would say there probably is, there's something different between journalists. There are different sensibilities. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, editorial direction, you know. I I do think there is some sort of influence that a broader newspaper has, and it inculcates within the reporters to a degree that informs the narratives that they look for. I am sympathetic to that, yeah. Wouldn't you say Matt Levine's coverage of tech is rather different than Mike Isaacs, for example? Sure. I mean, they're, they're, they're totally well, they're different, different jobs. Yeah, yeah very yeah. different reporters, different coverage of uh, things. I mean, look, here's, here's the interesting thing. I'm glad that you picked up on the idea of juicy narrative um, because I do think that that is a huge part of what drives reporters to cover a story. And it's yep. one of the reasons I find it completely insane that people like David Sachs and other people on the All In Podcast have this idea in their head that it is in reporters' best interest to write nice and flattering and ass-covering stories about SBF at this point because – you know, reporters are politically aligned with him because he's, you know, a mainstream Democratic voter. We are biased if they're if towards anything towards a juicy narrative and a Bernie Madoff level downfall of someone who is clearly a character is going to attract any reporter no matter what. I just don't buy this idea that reporters are looking to soft pedal anything to do with Sam Bankman-Fried because 
it suits their kind of political interests. I mean, he's a great story. There will be incredible pieces written about him by all the outlets that I'm sure the entrepreneurial class hates because that's the bias. The bias is towards a great story. So I don't, I don't know. Well, but it's funny. It's funny you mentioned Madoff because I think one of the things that got published is actually coverage of the Madoff scandal. And specifically, Madoff also made political donations, right? And the media actually pushed the politicians that he donated to, which were both Democrats and Republicans, to give it back. And somehow there hasn't been the same push in the SBF case, although he was Hmm. sprinkling money. But Madoff got charged very, like, as soon as it was public, he was being charged, right? If I remember correctly. And I think part of the issue with SBF has just been, these things evolve over time. People were defending Elizabeth Holmes, like tech people were defending Elizabeth Holmes post the Wall Street Journal story. And then it took a long time for that narrative to really turn. And I just think like there is just smart positioning from people who want to be very critical of the media who mm-hmm. accurately said the media hasn't gone sour enough fast enough. But it, it's just like it is going it, now the media is just not going to get credit for accurately recalibrating when their actual charges, which is sort of how humanity works. You process information and the mood evolves. Here, here's a question, Eric. I'm going to turn the tables. I'm the, ca- I'm, the, I'm the podcast captain now. <laughs> please, it's like the, uh, the Captain Phillips thing. You know, it's funny. I, I often I don't I try not to get embroiled in these cultural war things as a like they stress me out and I find them kind of pointless. But I, I do think they reflect underlying phenomenon, right? Like in machine learning, there's this notion of what's called a, or a statistics of a latent variable. So like you're measuring like these categories, but actually there's like another category that is really what you should be looking at that's actually driving the phenomenon. Sure. And, and the variables you're looking at are only weakly reflecting that. And it, like you're kind of wrong if you're not looking at the underlying thing. Totally. And so one of the weird like binary latent variables that I find, and it applies equally both to tech and media people, by the way, is I think I called it in one of my Substack footnotes, institutionalists versus anti-institutionalists. And the idea here is that there are those who don't think there actually is a viable political center, like small L liberal political center, mm-hmm. and that institutions are not worth rescuing. And, you know, it's either all out political war in the ruins of whatever political life is left. And then, by the way, let's just create fundamentally new institutions. And then there are those who, although they might be on the right or the left, they still believe in those fundamental institutions. And I and I had that thought with someone, I, I won't name her because I, I don't want to drag her into this, but a noted journalist who is in our mix, right? And I, and I realized, I thought she was kind of in my camp. And then I realized that actually they were an institutionalist. They believe in the institutions, even if they publicly have it out with those institutions. And I'm a less a believer in that, in that the fact that there's a sort of viable center institutionalism. And so where do you find yourselves? Do you think there is a center worth saving, that, there, that the institutions are actually worth rescuing or not? My uh, college application essay was about how uh, this is the most embarrassing thing I could reveal, but uh, you not know, more embarrassing about, than saying what college you, know, you went I grew to. Up in Macon, Georgia, okay. you know, uh, around Republicans, and so when John Kerry was running for president, I held up, you know, a sign like "Friends don't let friends vote Republican." And then by the time you know the Obama campaign was working, I'd like cut off my ponytail and I was volunteering for the Obama campaign, and you know, as high school state coordinator for him, and in Georgia, and so. It was sort of the evolution in sort of my personal psychology into more of a institutionalist. And I, I just don't see how anything is achieved if not through institutions. I think media is meant to create, you know, the, I feel like the classic media story, the, the, the iconic media story obviously still is bringing down Nixon with Watergate, which is sort of like the failure of institutions. But fundamentally, humanity needs to be organized. And I feel like the only viable alternative to the institutional thesis is this crypto sort of imagination game yes. that you're going to answer with. 
And like, it's not here. There is what, what is the non-institution answer? Like, should we be critical of institutions? Absolutely. But institutions are the only game in town. Yeah, no, I mean, it's good that you start the Watergate thing, because I've often like thrown that in journalists' faces, like you're all trying to be Woodward and Bernstein. I, get, totally. I, I, I still think it is the platonic abstract. It's the Aaron Sorkin movie line of like, institutions are corrupt, but ultimately there's a happy ending and they come through in the end and they're reformed and right. there's an American flag, right? And the crypto thing you're referring to, just for reference, I assume is like Balaji's network state type thing. The that idea sort that, of, yeah, vague, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I did a review of his book. I know Balaji personally as well. I'm, I'm <laughs> a <laughs> I, the theme I, of this will be the named and unnamed people that you're close to. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> well, it's weird, but whatever. I, it's, I'm trying to be sensitive because I know these people and, you know, I don't like trashy people. And I like the network state. I think it's an interesting idea. And you might be throwing shade on it, but I, I'll tell you this. Imagine there was a Balagian network state that encompassed, like, the three neighborhoods in San Francisco that everyone in tech lives in and the two neighborhoods in Miami and the, whatever, five neighborhoods in New York. And like the urban archipelago of this network state, imagine that actually existed and there was like borders and passports and checkpoints. Would you even notice or would you not notice because you've never left it, right? And I noticed that in my life, I'm a little bit weird in that I've often had some weird rural red state place to hide out in. So I would cross the border occasionally, but most of, I think, our cohort wouldn't even notice it exists because they'd never crossed its borders. And so, sure, it's easy to throw shade on the network state not existing, but functionally it's already here, right, in the sense that very few of your friends or our friends live in the flyover and have very different political views than we do or very different backgrounds than we do. And so that fragmentation is already here. And I think what Balaji is highlighting, and Balaji is right about a lot of things and hyperbolic about other things, is that we've decoupled like how information, I've, I've said this in more than one podcast, how information moves around and how we physically move around and the political structures that govern our lives are now totally decoupled, right? Like this is a prism through which I refract reality. And this has nothing to do with the fact that I'm in San Francisco, California, United States of America, right? Can, I want to make a very high level point that I want you to engage sure. with. Sure. Okay. I'm glad Balaji exists. Like definitely fundamentally, I think people, elites, are way too boring, conservative. They don't say anything interesting. The McKinseyification of the world is terrible. Like, I'm against it all. I'm glad Balaji exists. But the problem that I see with tech is that then it goes from, okay, Balaji only needs to be right 5% of the time, 10% of the time to be interesting. But yeah. all of a sudden, these people are literally governing. Elon is in charge. We're not applying the startup model. They want to apply the startup model to actual government they want to apply it to the actual control of platforms. And there, they're sort of, oh, we'll be right 10% of the time, but it'll be really interesting. Doesn't work anymore. And they're criticizing the people who are trying to be right 90% of the time and therefore are more conservative, you know, conservative, even though they're all Democrats, in that they're trying to protect institutions and can't blow everything up every time. Maybe. But I mean, this might sound like what aboutism, but how is what Elon's doing at Twitter any different than what the Salzburgers have been doing for the New York Times for five generations? The New York or, Times is one of the best institutions in America. I'll say that that's well, mm, we could argue about that. That's where day. we disagree. Yeah. <laughs> and some people think it should be burnt to the ground. Um, it is it is holding it is holding truth together here. Oh, is it now? Oh. Imagine that Mark Zuckerberg actually picked like his smartest seeming son as the next CEO of Facebook and did that for you know, what is it, five or six generations? Yeah. Would, I you, mean, would you be such a fan of that sort of dynastic it's management sad. strategy and tech? I mean, nepotism rules all over the world. So but So you I, just accept it, you're fine with it. Do do you think that a New York Times employee can criticize the Salzburgers in their internal Slack in the same way that you could do it? inside a tech company, for example? I mean, Bloomberg definitely did not allow much internal criticism. And I think some of the internal mm -hmm. criticism doesn't really make sense. I mean, they're hierarchical institutions like 
edit like part of the value is that you have an editor in chief who sort of makes the calls. So I'm not advocating for open dissent. And I think there are plenty of reporters who are annoyed by the people who tried to hijack these organizations from the bottom up. I don't know. Tom. I guess I'm less concerned about the ownership of the New York Times than the worldview that it is comforting and the lack of ability to challenge broader structures beyond kind of the most obvious institutions that it'll write about. I mean, I think Facebook has been the most egregious example of that to bring it all back to their coverage of Facebook. You know, with the 2016 election, the fallout of that, the New York Times basically did two things. One, they sent a bunch of reporters to diners across the middle America to have them interview random people and have them try to explain you know, why they did such a horrible thing, which is voting for Trump. And then they wrote a bunch of stories about how Facebook is also responsible for Trump because they allowed a small number of Russian affiliated actors to, you know, advertise on the platform. None of these are actually dealing with the broader rot that is happening in America that would cause people to take a drastic action, like electing a completely unqualified person who had no interest in actually running the country. But the New York Times wouldn't deal with that. And so, like, this gets back to, like, institution. I don't think the New York Times is like that. Maybe it's some result of it being a multi-generationally owned, fam- you know, family business that is a East Coast elitist view of, of what is and isn't acceptable speech. Or it's just the nature of the subscribers and the readers of the play. Like, I, I am somewhat sympathetic to, to this worldview that, that, you know, the entrepreneurial class talks about with the New York Times. But I guess, like, I find it so unfulfilling as an American to hear the solution to our problems is let's write a bunch of stories about obvious things rather than dealing with broader challenges. And it seems like there's very little interest in dealing with broader kind of social material challenges that are happening right now. I rest my case, Tom. You said it better than I could. But I would go further and say that, yeah, if the New York Times grappled with Trump the way it did, is it perhaps because it could do nothing but look down its noses in contempt at those who actually voted for Trump for whatever reason? And that's why they couldn't ask the real questions of why that why that happened. And they'd rather blame $100,000 in Russian Facebook spend, which would never win any election anyway. Right. Right. But to be yeah. clear, I don't think there were a bunch of other, you know, institutions in America that were doing that either. Right. I mean, I certainly don't think Elon's Twitter and this kind of half cocked idea of free speech and, you know, really just railing against journalists and I don't know, you know, Taylor Lorenz or something is any sort of actual response to it. It's just kind of like participating in a similar type of culture war, but in like a unideologically coherent way. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this, um, (laughs) I think such an unlock to American culture is actually what used to be called WWF when I was a kid or now WWE, right? Like this is all kayfabe. Mm -hmm. And every tribe every tribe has its heel, right? And and I often, that's also part why I didn't participate. You can always find a tweet of some idiot on the other side who's doing some stupid thing. And that doesn't really represent a trend or anything real in the world. But one side, not to... Our side desperately wants to talk to your side. And your side's <laughs> whole strategy is not engagement. Acknowledge that. Like, Bology is telling people not to engage. We are inviting, I email Mark and Because why, why, why would I engage? I had second thoughts about this podcast. I almost didn't come on it. I was going to write you an email this morning saying, sorry, Tom. But don't you think we're having a productive discussion? Like, or at least like, look how many times we've this agreed, week. Antonio. <laughs> we, um, all have, we have the, all the same reference points. We see, we, we see a lot of, like, I feel like we should have taken a survey before. Like, what's your, True or false this, true or false this, just to see where we were before we came in. I, I mean, look, I'm not, I, I'm not a scientist about most things, and I'm definitely not like, you know, don't talk to any tech journalist ever. I, I, you know, my mother's a librarian. I myself wrote a book. You know, I think recording history in some draft or another is important. And it may not be within the rubric of like capital J journalism as it exists today, but I think we need to record history. Tech is interesting. There's weird ass shit that goes on in tech. And it, I think t- what I would encourage people to do at this point, rather than talk to reporters, is tell their own story. 
Like, I think more tech people should write books or have blogs or address directly their audience. And it may not be seen through the rubric of the framing of what media has. But if we take away journalism as the thing that exists today, chronicling reality and having interesting viewpoints, I think, is worth having. Mm -hmm. And so I just think this model where everybody is just self-disclosing, most people do not give honest portraits about themselves. Like, would you want to consume that world? Like, I would love good conservative media, like actual, like fact-based, reported, scoopy. Like, I love a conservative outlet that delivers scoops just to show that they're actually trying to get information. But that doesn't exist. And I just don't. But, but the, my question here is, do you really think you could get a good picture of the world if you weren't a super insider who already knew people personally in some area, get information from just people's self-published work? I think it would be different, right? A memoir, right, citing my own book, which is slightly douchey, but, you know, it, it was fact-checked in the sense that I reconstructed it from emails and texts, and I tried to get the timing as correctly as possible. It was not some, like, lived experience piece of creative, you know, fiction. That said, it was one view, right? And right. You know, it's a proverbial elephant thing. So I think they need to be combined. I mean, look. When right. any jur- they need to be synthesized by someone. Look, when any tech journalist reaches out and says, look, I, I know you know about ads and attribution and tracking, all this stuff. And like, I'm just trying to figure out the story. Like, I don't understand it. Can you just walk me through, like, what's the most recent Apple privacy thing? You know what? I, I get on the phone and in good faith try to explain it to the person. I still do it. Like, I forget the Financial Times, Brian McGee or whatever. He covers their Apple stuff. I've been a source on background or quoted or whatever more than once. And it's it's precisely because, yes, I or Stephen Levy, for example, I've, I've been interviewed by him so before. So you believe in journalism, despite no, what I, you I, say I, for fun on Twitter. Like. No, no, I, I don't. I, 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 in jur- I, journalism as it exists today, I do not. I think chronicling you weird realities are worth You them. want the no, fight. No, I don't That's, want the fight. Yes, I don't want do. the fight. I, Eric, I've often said it. I'm not really a narcissist. I just play one on the internet. This is why that, I have... Right. That, well, that I 100% agree no, with. Not that aspect. Exactly. But, but filtering I, all of this through Twitter is such a perverted way of viewing anyone's personality. I'm saying what view. I earnestly believe on Twitter, but people... When, <laughs> I am saying That's what, what scares I, us, like, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I agree. I, I don't know. Like, I think social media... Like, I, I retweeted Balaji today, right? He said one of these classic Balajiisms, social networks to socially filtered tribes or something... Right. And what I think what he means, I don't know, I'm trying to interpret Balaji here, but I think what he means by that is like the weird private groups that we're all in, that is a closer approximation to healthy social media. Right. In that there's an there's an admin. We all kind of know each other. It's below Dunbar's number of 140, which is like the number of people you can keep in your head. Right. It's like it's like a saner way of doing social media than I think Twitter, which is like a union of worsts. It is like the worst part of like you know, improvisational oral culture and the worst parts of searchable textual culture and then broadcast to everybody. It's just hard. With, with engagement I, mechanisms sprinkled in there so that you can feel yeah. rewarded can, for, for you know, outrageous viewpoints. Can I, I mean, just quickly on, on your book front, because you did, you know, you, you've written a book. Everyone knows you for having written that book. It's very entertaining. Yeah. But it also like later on, you know, was used against you, right? I mean, mm-hmm. this was a situation where I, I don't know how often you've talked about this before, but you were hired to go to Apple and there was essentially... Mm-hmm you know, a Slack-led uh, uh, uprising against the fact that you were joining this company. And yep. it was filtered through the media in a way that maybe informs some of your viewpoints on, on you know, the... Uh, yeah, you know, that's what the other guy said last week. And that's, that's totally not true. I've been fighting with the media way, <laughs> right before, way before that. that happened. The other um, guy. Oh, that... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And what, what well, I, I, say I, I actually, By the way, I'm not saying this is some sort of, you know, damage in your person or anything like that. If right. anything, I found... I found that whole episode to be rather frustrating on, on on your part. I thought it was journalistic malpractice, or at the very least, it was it was one of the elements of 
bad acting in journalism, which is basically taking any sort of internal information and right. creating a story around that. And not every single thing that is leaked to you as a reporter needs to be made into a piece. And I well, the, the, yeah. that's and that's what that's one of the problems with what I'll call the journalistic epistemology. Like, how do they figure out truth? They necessarily have to talk to people who want to talk to them. Right. And who is that person? It's typically disgruntled people it's who obviously have a very sure. it's right. It's a crank, or it's an internal person who has some political battle and they want to co-opt the media to try to advance their internal thing. Right. right. Like, dude, I worked at companies and talked to journalists. I know. I know sure. how the score. I know how the score works. Sure. And You're not wrong. But, but that's why the the non-cooperation is so infuriating because then it's like, well, you're making the media more biased against you, right? Obviously. Like I said, I think journalists who actually try to like help me understand how this actually works, I I'm happy to talk with. And I think those who are trying to find a villain to cast in their little movie, I <laughs> I agree, but, they should be totally and utterly shut up. But out. you don't think things you don't think character driven like you wrote a memoir, like people are going to understand history through people. I think this idea, and this is part of the builder versus writer divide, is that they almost don't want it to be about people. They want it to be about, but because it's not about people, people dude. Care about people I, care about. People. I know, I know, I know, and and I and I understand it, and that's why the the book is a little bit overwritten on the sort of saltiness front, in the sense that like, you know, you you have to make it be this personal like Hunter S. Thompson s thing, when really like ninety nine percent of the book, and this is what pissed me off about. Uh, some of the coverage of the book, 99% of the book is trying to explain how like the media markets work, right? It's like the mm -hmm. nerdiest book that hopefully in an entertaining way tries to understand like how does a company like Facebook decide to make money? Can and I? it's not, it's not easy, but I anyway, mean, go ahead. Yeah. Well, just because I, you know, do you consider yourself a Republican or how much do you speak for the Oh, right? I, no, I don't talk. I don't address politics at all whatsoever. At all? No. I mean, well, then you can dodge this one or I don't know. But I mean, part of the challenge I feel like we face with the sort of conservative tech elite is that they're playing now. There's a conservative tech elite. Okay, what, the, the, are there not? Or, or you don't, don't want know. me to name individual people? So I was trying to, you know, I'm, I'm just saying Sachs and Mark Andreessen or whatever, whoever that represents. I think we trick ourselves into thinking a thing exists when we assign a name to it. That's what I think. What do you mean? You've just declared there to be this thing, right? And now there's this thing that we're talking about. Well, it's I'm hard sure. to get polling. It's I'm not like, sure. I'm not you sure. Think they it don't exists. represent like a view. Or? I mean, look, the political donations inside fan companies is public record. You can look at it. Does it seem to you that there's some sort of conservative tech elite? So is the takeaway that we're sort of being the media is being hoodwinked by like paying too much attention to these people and sort of like? But my my point was just the conflict between like the professed populism, whereas like the actual sort of policy interest seems to be sort of low government intervention, low taxes. I mean, do you think there is genuine... Here, here's populism? one thing I will comment, and again, in a very distant, abstract, um, descriptive rather than normative way. One thing that I find that's interesting on the right is, and I think you're, you put your finger on it, the traditional sort of GOP Republican was like, you know, small government, low taxes, like the Reagan Republican. And I think you're seeing the creation of a capital N, capital R, new right, that, right. That, that doesn't perceive itself that way, that is more comfortable with using government authority to implement some agenda and yeah, broadly speaking, sees itself, it's weird because yeah, it, it sees itself in revolt against some sort of elite that it doesn't feel it's a part of, right? Yeah. And yeah, that, that, that definitely is novel, right? That's definitely not the, you know, I was raised in the 80s in Miami and everyone loved Reagan and this is not that. Right? <laughs> Clearly something has changed on the right. And I, yeah, I don't, I don't know where this is going. I don't claim to have an answer, but I think you're right that there is a big, there's a big difference. I wanted to ask you a question about advertising because that is a space that you professionally uh, spent a lot of time in. And I, I covered advertising for a while. Um, I think there's an interesting thing going on right now in terms of advertisers and where they play a role in, in the internet culture wars because you're seeing, I mean, this is all just about Elon and Twitter, but you know, advertisers pulling off of the platform because they view it as not brand safe. 
And it's an interesting flip on, you know, reading about the way Republicans or conservatives view advertisers in the in the 70s and in the, the culture wars then, which is basically like they're on our side, right? They're going to stop us, you know, the, the left from being too progressive because they're trying to sell the most number of products and, you know, the Democrats or whatever, you know, the, the leftist culture warriors then were pushing things too far from what mainstream America wanted. What do you think about, you know, the, the internet advertising's role in like being a moderating force on, on either side? I think it's, to use Tyler Cohen language, it's an underrated point in the sense that I think people don't bring it up. I think advertising catches a lot of heat, some of it justified for sketchy data practices. But broadly speaking, the thought that, you know, media has gone to the shitter because of advertising is like not only wrong, it's like the exact opposite of the truth. Like advertising is, again, I think we addressed this earlier in the podcast, um, is the thing that maintained this sort of objective both sides journalism in which, you know, sure, newspapers had certain slants to them. But whether you were the New York Times or the Cleveland Plain Dealer or the Chicago Sun-Times, you couldn't go too off the rails because Macy's or pick your normie advertiser just wouldn't want to co-appear with like some radical opinion. And so I think advertising has been a moderating force. I think people, again, who advocate, oh, subscription-driven journalism is better. I encourage you to go read about the history of 19th century American journalism and see, or, or you know, even further back, that you know, 18th century American journalism. Ben Franklin was basically an non-account shit poster who wrote under at least 20 different aliases. The whole Hamilton, Burr, well, but he wrote the Federalist many, Papers. You're the Federalist saying, Papers. Yeah. It was a very pugnacious time, right? And at the end of the day, the customer gets what they want. And in the case of advertising-driven journalism, that means fairly non-inflammatory, even-keeled coverage, which is what the advertiser wants. And in the case of subscribers, they want their worldviews echoed back at them in more articulate form. But not yeah. to fuel the culture war, it wasn't the media that was saying clickbait journalism was the problem. Yeah, yeah dude, I'm not, I'm not finger-pointing here. But I, no, I think, but, there, but there, there is like a discourse that's like advertising is bad and its influence on the media has been bad. And I'm the other side of that. Well, I was just making a petty, petty point uh, that uh, about clickbait journalism. You know, I no, feel I'm, like there's no accountability. Like we just get yelled at about clickbait journalism. Like you know, this is how internet fights start. It's like reporters experience just getting yelled at constantly, accused of clickbait. When yeah, I'm working I, I, at I Bloomberg, yeah. yeah, and then it's like it, it just makes you very hostile. It, it increases the hostility towards the tech set when you're like, I mean, you're the, uh, to really broaden this, and I think what Tom's talking about is sort of like the business model incentives of behavior. And I think often, you know, tech people want to talk about like the business model incentive behavior of their own businesses. But then media criticism isn't really judged through the same lens of business model. Well, look, I mean, to put on my media hat, I guess, for one, like, you know, split second. Yeah, I mean, a lot of tech people don't understand how media works, right? Like the, the clickbait thing. Again, Bloomberg, it's ridiculous, right? People pay right. Wh whatever it is, $2,000 a pop just to, <laughs> just, just to use a Bloomberg terminal. It's not about the clickbait, yo. Right. <laughs> like that's just not what, it's, not, not what it is. Yeah, I agree. I mean, yeah. No, but yeah. I'm actually, my, my point was less about journalism here and more about social media because, you know, we've seen advertisers play a part occasionally as a response to media outcries against platforms, right? I mean, you saw the adpocalypse with YouTube, you saw, you know, whatever movement against Facebook in, in the wake of, I don't even remember which controversy that caused big advertisers to claim they were not advertising on Facebook. And now we're seeing the same thing happening, not for the same reasons, but with Twitter. And, and a ton of advertisers are just pulling off of the platform. Yep. And I'm interested in, in your, your, your take on whether, 
because I don't believe advertisers are moral actors. I don't think for the most part they are trying to uh, advance some sort of moral cause. I think they want to see where they believe the direction of the country is at and make sure that they are aligning their products with the most safe place for them to be, which, you know, from, you know, from a broader cultural standpoint now appears to be a little bit more liberal or, or, or towards, you know, like a, a broader embrace of genders and identities and things like that, which I know a lot of conservatives or the people that are backing Elon feel is, you know, is woke and it gets this idea of woke capitalism. And, you know, as you're seeing advertisers pulling off of Twitter right now in response to this, you know, content moderation, free speech, absolutism, whatever that his group is pushing, what do you see as, uh, I don't know, what is the role that advertising is playing? Is it a factor that you think that side should be listening more to? Or are they just in thrall of like the woke leftists? I mean, it's a good question. I think, do advertisers represent popular will? Are they trying to maximize the reach? Or do they express the will of a relatively small elite class that has certain values that may not be then that may not, may not be representative. I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, brand advertising is a whole different beast than like the performance advertising that I've typically worked totally. in, right? You're, try, you're trying to convey, and for those who don't know what that means, like performance marketing is like buy this thing, right? It's like the direct-to-consumer ads you see in our Instagram feed. And then brand advertising is some like snazzy BMW or Burberry ad that tries to convince you, not necessarily buy that thing right now, but when you're in a financial position to flaunt your wealth, you'll think to buy a BMW 5 Series or whatever, mm -hmm. right? And sure. it's a very different thing. It's like vibes versus click on this thing. And a lot of brand marketing has always been a little bit, you know, not exactly a, a, a person of the people sort of thing, right? Because you're trying to evince elite values. I, I don't know. I Again, I, I hate theming things, right, from any side. Like, oh, this monolithic them. Mm -hmm. But it, it does seem like there's a certain set of values that, again, you see in, in corporation, academia, and media that have a lot more in common than they have apart. And it's, you, you used to have, like to Eric's point about why isn't there a better conservative media, you used to have kind of right of center newspapers that were like respectable and not intellectually brain dead and you could, and you know, a liberal could read and appreciate, right? Like who's left, the Wall Street Journal? But, I mean, most reporters at the Wall Street Journal are liberal. And, yeah. and like The Economist is clearly pretty, definitely liberal by American standards. Um, yes. I don't know so if I would say it, that. I would say the Economist is probably like institutionalists and like it's very Biden. Left. It's very aligned with the Biden. It's like Democratic Biden. Party. I wouldn't say sure. it's like a okay, liberal whatever. rag, but anyway. neoliberal yeah. shills it's not conservative. is the term. It's all that I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, the uh, yeah. I, uh, well, <laughs> I'm almost like fight with us more. I mean, one observation I think from this conversation is that I do wonder how much of our problems are specific to where they happen. Right. Like. A lot of my frustration with the arguments they have is that they come in Twitter format and that people basically take advantage of the fact that they can be withholding, right? If I'm a powerful person, I can put out one tweet and my fans don't expect me to engage with every like reasonable argument. And so then I have really no obligation to go back and forth. And so then we have these sort of just like spot, we have these statements with no real discourse. And I feel like it just fuels a lot of anger. I don't know. How much do you think it's a Twitter problem <laughs> rather than a cultural problem? Like, I don't mm. feel so far apart in view with you, like, or at least convince me where besides the New York Times, which feels fairly trivial to me, I, I've yet to be convinced that we're actually ideologically so far apart. Yeah. You know, there's a truism in startup culture that 
most startups problems are not really technical problems. Although the founders tend to think that's what it is. It's usually human problems, right? There's a management problem. There's a product problem or something else. Um, I, I do think, I do think social media cannot be fixed, which is why I'm very skeptical of content moderation and, oh, the algorithm will fix things. Well, guess what? WhatsApp doesn't have an algorithm and it, there's been all sorts of fucked up shit thanks to, to WhatsApp, right? There's, there's no algorithm there. So I, I don't think there's fixing it. That, that said, I, I do think there's forms of social media that are more kind of humane and normal for the average use case than other ones. So like, again, like, who thrives on Twitter? You have to be like a total narcissist or the most disagreeable right. human on the history of the planet. It makes me angry. <laughs> right. It makes you angry. And you have to like being angry or you have to be so disassociated that you don't get angry. But like, right. you know, I, like I've had conversations with people like Barry Weiss, to a lesser extent, Matt Iglesias, Matt Taibbi, and they're very good at what they do, right? Like they're, they're like born to be on Twitter and drive engagement. And I don't mean that in a bad way, right? But it's like, man, I cannot do what you do. I cannot just get up in the morning say a thing, and then get kicked in the face by 10,000 people. you got a lot of followers the there, though. I mean, I don't know how much yeah. you try to mix it up and, and just throw bombs into the crowd, but you're pretty good at it. Like, I would say uh, among the class of people in tech who, you know, are, are in certain ways spokesperson of the, the mindset, yeah. feel like you're out there, you know, you're, 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 you you got a lot of Miami stuff, I feel. Yeah, to, to me, the perfect, you know what the perfect tweet to me is? It's a tweet that both pleases or pisses off both camps <laughs> equally. That to me is the perfect tweet. You can read it in both directions and everyone gets pissed off. I don't quote tweet and like dunk on people that much. I mean, very rarely. I, yeah, I just, I don't like playing the game. I think it's bad. I think it's negative mojo. Yeah, I agree. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what comes after it though. And it seems like the alternative that we're moving towards, which is just smaller and smaller networks, is just going to eventually push itself towards even more insular thinking, right? I mean, maybe it won't be as angry, which is some sort of benefit, but if the, at least there was some sort of exchange of ideas. I've seen a lot of Facebook people arguing this, that like you actually are more exposed to other viewpoints yes. when you're on social media than you would have been yes. uh, prior to it. I, I, th I think that's true. There's yeah. a number of studies you can cite and these studies can prove almost anything, but I, I don't think filter bubbles are real in the sense that I think the problem is that you're actually exposed to viewpoints that are diametrically opposed to yours all the time, right? And presented in the most like outrage producing way. I mean, again, the reality, I think I mentioned this earlier, like disconnecting what we see and think and talk with from the sort of bubble of community and the little border on the map that would typically have defined your linguistic and cultural and political boundaries. That's a real problem, right? Like the U.S. used to be a lot more regional, right? The Atlanta Journal-Constitution could have its little editorial policy that flies in Atlanta and the guy in L.A. never had to get pissed off about it. Right. And there wasn't some way to like, oh, look at this stupid Atlanta this Journal Constitution. Yeah. yeah. And then then there's a whole cancellation or there's dogpiling, whatever. Like it was just hard to do. Like, I, you know, I mean, we're all probably roughly the same age. I remember being raised in the 80s. If you wanted to read The New York Times, like you had to find a copy. It was hard. Like it didn't matter what the fuck happened in New York. You didn't care. There was no way to create that. You were just defined by your little world. And we've we've strayed from that. And I think. I have a very aggressive block policy. I think, Eric, I probably had you blocked at some point. Sure. I, I started I, blocking. I don't block, like, newsmakers, but I block their sycophants all the right, time. Right, right. I do it all the time. I have, like, a hair block trigger. And by the way, I've, I've, I've had people ask me, like, hey, like, we had a misunderstanding. Can you unblock me? I'm like, sure, bro. Like, let's just get over it. Let's move on. I do that all. If I, I, what I wish there was was, like, a seven-day block button, like, timeout. So I just don't have to see you for seven days. But then it's okay. We're back, right? I, I think you have to recreate the walls. It's the only way to live in society. Like, I don't want to sit there and argue the moral foundations of society every day right. Right, with all the entire internet. Like, I just right. can't do it's it. It's exhausting. It's, it's exhausting. exhausting. Yes. And I actually find, by the way, the, the most of the people that I've blocked over time are people that I like personally. And when I see them acting a certain way on Twitter and I start feeling negatively about them, I'm like, well, that's not how I actually feel about them. 
Can I ask you, though, because you are cert- friends with certain people that do, yeah. uh, you know, quite publicly attack media and journalists. When you talk to them in person, are they ranting about us? I mean, do they really, truly spend their time offline being like, these fucking guys? I can't divulge confidences. Um, I'm not even naming names. I'm just saying, like, is that even a topic of conversation? I mean, less than the other side probably thinks, but definitely more than zero. <laughs> um, well, that's a good answer. Do you think, like, do you think both sides are debating in good faith? I think they think they are. What's your assessment of good faith? The failures and success, or like when it's genuine and not perceived to be it and when, it, when it's not? Or like, I, I, I mean, I'll refer to, again, something I said earlier, which I think that the latent variable we see in society is between institutionalists and anti-institutionalists. And when you say good faith, what you mean is you and I, even though you might be one point in the political spectrum, I'm another, we can find some common ground that we can discuss a thing. And I think the difference is some people think that can happen and some people think it can't happen. And I think that's the delta. And I think if you're feeling increasing radicalization or like a hardening in the tone from the tech side, it's because more and more people are giving up and never having that common ground. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That is the most reassuring thing ever. But yeah. <laughs> I guess as somebody who isn't, you won't let us talk about specific people, but if you're a techno optimist, shouldn't you believe that society can be fixed? Therefore, these gaps can be bridged. Therefore, in speech, there should be an attempt to bridge them. Like that's well, the ideology I can't connect. It's like you're you're a techno optimist, but you are you believe in sort of doom and gloom about sort of human sort of us being able to be reconciled. Well, but maybe nuking the journalist is the fix, right? <laughs> if you're looking at it from their point of view, right? That that that's the that's the fix. Yeah. Do yeah. you believe that or like we? Yeah. What, what is like? I, I, let's I, engage. What? I don't want to walk away from this. I feel like. Where we didn't, where you didn't really say your strong, truly held position, like engage with the actual journalist in front of you. Like, what yeah. is the, what would the solution be? Get rid of, just like shut down all the papers, or like what? No. And what is the policy vehicle to get there? Or what's the way? What do you even expect? Look, I, I don't think anyone. Well, that's not true. Some people would probably say that. I don't think anyone would seriously entertain like literally, you know, killing the journalism industry as it exists. I, I think mean, Balaji talks like that. I mean, yeah. Sorry. Well, okay, you know, Balaji has his views. I think. I mean, the nature of journalism is changing. Like we talked about it, the Woodward and Bernstein model. I think it still can exist. Like I see, I see pieces even coming out of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal that are still pretty good. Like I read, it's like okay, like you know, yeah. If I was a layman, this is a pretty good sort of summary of like kind of what happened. I think it's rare, but it does happen. But I think, yeah, the juicy narrative thing is what's happening. People are just want juicy narratives. And I think t- I would be satisfied if like, and you hear this a little bit in the Elon rhetoric, at least from what I've read, that like he wants everyone on an equal footing. Like being a journalist doesn't just let you dox people and show up on their door. It's like, I don't like, where is the special, like I was, again, like a fact check journalist who got paid by like respected Condé Nast publications. Where's my little special magic journalist card, like licensed to dox thing. I am 007 licensed to dox. Yeah. I can show up on your doorstep and nobody else can. Anyone else does it? Oh, and it's a threat to safety, but I Wait, do you it can't and show we're defending up. democracy. Like, what the hell? Well, why? Right? We, but you don't... Uh, well, I mean, I'm in an interesting place, right? Because I'm not in a news organization, right? So what gives me sort of this journalistic principle is whatever sort of ethical sort of class status that exists in journalism and only that. And I I feel like showing up at someone's door to ask them a question is like a great example here where totally if you just had some, I mean, if you had somebody show up at your door, I mean, I think this is actually easy now that I think about it for one second. If someone shows up at your door and they're not trying to publish a piece, 
they're clearly showing up as a threat, right? Like what is, you need a reason. Whereas if you're a journalist showing up at the door, I think people see it as a threat because they see the power of journalism. But obviously it is an actual sincere attempt to get comment in a belief in good faith. Like this is where the not believing that there's a real possible bridge makes journalism so hard because there is like Bloomberg runs and almost to my frustration would run statements from the subject that I thought were like so flatly like false that we shouldn't even like give them air. But I, I do think media companies are bending over backwards to represent what these people believe by going to their door and trying to get comment when they won't respond. Okay, dude, but, you know, a lot, of that, fall, a lot of that falls into the, uh, so, sir, when did you stop beating your wife category? It's like, you can frame questions a certain way and, and you frame a source a certain way and that's where the journalistic bias comes in. I mean, I, again, but you have to accept that journalists have some sort of crown, like, oh, I am on a fact-finding mission. Anyone else who shows up on your door is a threat. And I think that's a hard dichotomy to maintain when you have a, a media that's perceived as being extraordinarily biased. Yeah. Well, I, you sort of said in the beginning of this conversation and this is where I can't quite square the circle that like part of the value of ad based sort of shared media is that we created sort of this collective narrative. And, you know, if you have that model, then you have people who are sort of empowered by society. This is literally the first amendment. I had to look it up the other day just to reassure myself mentions the press specifically. Like it is part of the bedrock of America. You talked about all the founding fathers being writers, like that there is press that sort of is a unifying force that allows people to see the culture through a shared lens. Like, you, you just don't believe in that anymore. No, that's not true. But, but you I'm asking that, you. I mean, not, not that I'm a constitutional originalist, but the press as it existed in Ben Franklin or George Washington's time sure. was very different than the Bloomberg of today. That's the difference, right? And, and again, many would argue that the press that the founding fathers were thinking about is more encapsulated with what perhaps you're doing right now with this podcast. But journalists are more supportive of me than your tech builders. Like, let me tell you, I I have not had the door open to tech builders by being independent. It's exactly the Dude, same. Dude, what do they the gain talking to you? They're, they're going right, to get screwed. Because, because they don't believe, they're not going to get screwed, honestly. Like, are you getting screwed? Like, I'm... Are you getting screwed? Like, no, but I, you know, I, you're not doing a story on me, right? Like, this is like more. I'm trying a- to interrogate your views. That's what I do professionally. Okay. Like, yes. I'm happy to air the recording of Mark Andreessen if he wants to do the interview, but like, it's cowardice and disingenuous. And like, I respond, like, I'm begging you, have an argument. That's what we're here for. Again, why would they do it? <laughs> because and they I- see everything through strategic. A strategic lens and not through actually... Because you've, you've imposed that. Because I, I, every CEO, and this, like, talk to any CEO, and they will have the story of when they got burned by whatever, Wall Street Journal, WAPO, New York Times. They'll have the, I got fucked by the reporter story. And that's what sets the tone. That's why you're seeing it. What's sure. the upside? If they want to I mean, address their audience, or if they, you know... As a CEO, there's two reasons to talk to the media. One is, obviously, brand building of some sort, establish a certain tone, recruitment, etc., you can message those channels directly now. Why, why would you need the, the, the journalist isn't the gatekeeper anymore is the reality. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Audience, there, there's strategic lens and then there's this earnest, it's the earnesty that I'm looking for on the right. That's why I feel like I'm in a strong position on this. Like, yeah, the strategic lens, I've been all over the pro go direct. You know, I, I wrote the story about Andreessen Horowitz going direct. Like, I totally understand that. But if people on the other side have sincere views, having them out like you're doing here is part of it. Okay, well, I, I, 
you know, broadly, one thing that I think is interesting is that this whole notion of like building and doing in public, like what Elon is doing with Twitter, the fact that he's kind of live tweeting this complete reboot, like whatever you think of it, the fact that he's actually like tweeting what's happening as it's happening is something that would never have happened in the corporate culture of 10 or 15 years ago. And uh, for those who are fans of it, and, and he does have many fans, if you look at the replies, I think that level of directness, that freshness comes off as authentic and real and not fake and not stage comes- managed. Sure, but he. Well, no, I mean, I, I think it's his very predictions about what happens in the future are extremely inaccurate. Well, Pete, but you know, j- journalists have gone to the extreme against Elon now. I think yes, they because, have because because Twitter is such an open air debacle uh, in 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 so many, I think, unassailably true ways. Or you know what I mean? Like it's unassailably true that it is a mess right now. But you know, but is fact- it though? But it, but it's but their DAUs are through the roof. And it's the well, greatest we show we in town. We don't know them. I mean, he he claims that they are. We don't. I haven't seen. Okay, any dude, but he on them. he he leaked the deck slides, and and Casey Newton would have reported on the real numbers instantly from the Twitter growth guy had they been fake, right? Like, oh, then I, I missed I missed that. I mean, wait, look. Casey reported on the numbers? No, 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 no. I'm saying Elon posted slides from what looked like a growth chart, and if they were fraudulent, which is what you were, you know, perhaps floating then mm-hmm. the real numbers would have leaked instantly because there's a level of scrutiny being applied to Twitter. Well, look, I, I missed that. I certainly think like setting a car on fire is also going to get a lot of people gawking at it. Um, and if you're ultimately... <laughs> and the revenue going, is certainly down, right? Are you questioning yeah, and, that? Like, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's no, it but, probably... But look, but, I, was, I was actually going to give Elon some credit here. I do think that because there is such an extreme view on journalist's part that he is doing such a uh, uh, certain job when running Twitter, there is this desire to throw everything that he's done to this point, you know, it, to throw it in the same light. And I think... There are reasonable people can make cases on the value that Tesla has given to the society broadly. And I actually think SpaceX and specifically Starlink are like great, great offerings. And I can even say that for personal reasons. So like journalists aren't willing to accept that now because it's a great story to, to, to throw Elon under the bus. But right. Uh, I mean, Elon has been just a fanboy for one second. I mean, the most transformative individual of our time in the long range view of history between space exploration and electric vehicles. Full disclosure, I own a Tesla 3. I like the car a lot. Um, that's been a transformative thing. And if anything, right, like, <laughs> I, I think I once joked that the uh, the Fermi paradox, which is this paradox, of, like, why don't we see more human life in the universe, is that every planet evolves to the point where the most ambitious, smartest person buys their version of Twitter, and then the whole society falls <laughs> apart. And they, they and they never actually get to Mars because they get so distracted with Twitter flame wars. And I hope that's not what happens with Elon, because I, I would like I to wish, see a Mars See, I wish there were more people making that argument, honestly, and saying, <laughs> Elon, you're trying to get us to Mars. Why are you fighting with there people, are people on Twitter? but not as many. I, as not as many as it are. should be. Like, the, right. the, because things have gotten so tribalist and, and defensive in, in the interactions there that... I would feel like people that truly believe he is the greatest entrepreneur of all time are instead saying he is the only free speech warrior in the world. Uh, you know, they're saying that instead of like, Elon, you should be focusing on Mars right now. What are you doing? Uh, I mean, I'm going to say something extremely sanctimonious, which I'm sh- sure you think most of what I've said has been sanctimonious. But I mean, journalists are super biased towards honesty, right? I mean, they... What? Oh, come yes, on. <laughs> yes. The problem with Elon is that he's an inveterate liar. He lies all the time. Oh, like, God. Oh, yeah. And, and that, journalists just utter God's own truth, do they? Huh? That's yeah. the goal. Like, that's oh. why we, you know... What? You, I, you think, I, don't know if I'm on, I don't know if I'm with you on that one. <laughs> I, I think that a lot of the hate is the spin around... Journalists have been manipulated future, so no. many times over the course yes. of decades by we, people yeah, who, like, any, 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 like, objective observation on this character would have been like, boy, Elizabeth Holmes does not seem like she's an honest actor uh, up until this point. Journalists are incredibly gullible. We are, gullible, we are, gullible we are fucking with the most credulous people out there. But it, if you're gullible, isn't that 
aligned with like believing and caring about honesty because you're taking someone at their word. That's quite the rhetorical horseshoe. By the way, this reminds me, remember that NPR show Left, Right, and Center where they had like three different people? (laughs) It's like we've got this weird (laughs) triptych going on. One thing you could do, and I know it's unrealistic, but you could get jobs in tech right, for starters, right? Like what, one thing I note that I think is, is a missing bridge is that it's easy to opinionate about and pontificate about tech. And I hate sports analogies in general, but when you're sitting in the stands versus standing on the field, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of journalists, won't name names, think that they're kind of players on the field when really they're just the loudest guy in the stands. And I think if they were ever in the position that anybody who's worked at any level of authority in tech, like you're sitting at a little standing desk like this one, you've got some dashboard and you're tasked with making that number go up and to the right. <laughs> and that number is some like complex thing around user engagement, monetization, content moderation, whatever it is. It's some weird multi-factor thing in a very real business and technical and political environment. And you have to grapple with that reality. I think if a lot more journalists and just the commentariat, because you know at this point there's academics, there's Substack, whatever it is, I think those people would benefit from being in that position and understanding the difficulty of what that means to build something, to ship it, to monetize it, to scale it, and all the problems that those imply. And I think, I wish we had more journalists who would do that. I mean, to make a broad point on this, and I think it's a very insightful point you're making, but it, it's it's a problem that has existed throughout culture, right? I mean, <laughs> to think about Ratatouille, or I just saw the movie The Menu, right? The restaurant industry bristling at critics who really don't know how to cook, aren't experts in their field, is something that has existed throughout like art and culture where the creative class bristles at critics, but the public find the critic find, has, at least in the past, found the critics necessary as sort of a vehicle to differentiating or learning about. And so with tech, I think one thing you're going to say, and I'll let you say it, is that tech maybe doesn't need the critics anymore. No. But two, the I feel like just is so powerful that their bristling at the critics is actually much more impactful to society in a way that a chef can sort of be angry about it, but then still still accepts this is part of life. So yeah, my response was not going to be that critics don't exist or that tech is beyond criticism. I mean, if, even if you read Cast Monkeys, there's a bunch of criticisms of tech and tech culture kind of implicit. But professional I'm, critics. Right, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. And people have made this argument to me before online when I've when I've criticized media. I think the, the fault in your analogy is that the analog, the journalistic analog of the restaurant critic, that restaurant critic is taking the user's side or the eater's side in the yeah. case of a restaurant. And they're having the same experience that the consumer would have in saying, you know, I have a distinguished palate. I've sampled 100 restaurants. Here's my take on it because I'm an informed consumer. The analog to that is not tech accountability journalism. It's what tech journalism used to be, which is mostly gadget reviews and kind of being, I'm a professional consumer of tech. Like, what thing do I buy or, or what do I use? And that's a very different flavor of criticism. Well, I think a lot of the, the fights are over, I'm a professional consumer of content moderation, especially since these user, the, twi- the reporters are the ones getting harassed. And so they're like, oh, I've thought about this a lot. This is how this company handles it. This is how this one does you know, I mean, those are a lot of the fights about content moderation right now. And they are sort of professional consumers of content moderation. Well, but I think including and especially in content moderation, the experience of being behind a dashboard and trying to do content moderation at scale would, I think, be very educational to those critics. And, and there's one thing sure. that you, you notice among them, with the exception of Stamos, who I think was the guest before, who has been kind of in that seat. Almost nobody in that class of commentariat has ever done it. And as a result, by the way, Stamos, I think, is one of the most reasonable voices within that class. Yeah, but I mean, the problem in life, and, you know, I think there will be more cross-pollination. I mean, the top 
tech Substack right now who I adore. This guy Gurgley, writes pragmatic engineer, was yep. at Uber. Yep. And he gets all these scoops that drive, and he's very negative on Elon. And he, he's actually very culturally aligned, I think, with the journalist class. But, you know, he, he was in industry and it gets him lots of scoops from developers. And I, I think it's great. So I want to see more than the, of that. I don't think it'll solve any of the problems that you think. And I think hmm. the reality is that specialization, just like in tech, is very valuable in reporting. I was an anchor on my elementary school newscast. Like there is <laughs> such disrespect for how hard it is. Like journalism jobs were dying. Like, do you know how many people from like the Crimson are like, oh my God, you actually went into journalism. I feel like the just crass, like condescension towards journalism when it is actually top journalism jobs are extremely rare. And so I think the idea that it's just like, oh yeah, like go have a totally different career and then figure out journalism just ignores all the specialization that exists in, in, in any industry. No, but if I could actually argue a little bit of Antonio's point here, I do think maybe what you're describing is not necessarily having a different career, but having like at least an ounce of empathy of the people that you're <laughs> writing about. No, because right. you know what? Listen to me. I think one of the most formative things for me as a journalist was the fact that most of my time was spent at a journalism startup at The Information, which was not always a very functional company. <laughs> Frankly, you know, I don't mind saying this on the podcast. It was really tough early on. And I've, as I've read stories that have come out about startups and just saying, oh, this is a total catastrophe. I've actually been like, well, look, I've been at a company that was tough, that had like a lot of problems early on. I've seen that you can get through it. I've seen that the feeling in the moment isn't the encapsulation of everything that the person who's leading it is and what the company stands for. And journalists tend to forget that. They, they, you know, right. the, you, they get the negative, you get, you get the critical sourcing from people at the company who frankly have an agenda doesn't totally. mean what they're saying is wrong. It doesn't mean that what they're saying isn't some element of the truth. But if you haven't experienced, at least in some way, what it could be like inside the company and that there could be multiple perspectives, not even just the CEO, but other employees there that feel slightly differently about it, you, if you don't understand that, you're not going to be a very good reporter. And I think what we're... What, right. what, what maybe, oh, I totally agree. I mean, part of the problem is it's like, yeah, I mean, it's terrifying that as a 20-year-old, you know, with like no experience in life, you're given a lot of power over powerful people as a journalist. So I accept that, that there's sort of, but some of that is just the fail. Like if, if journalism was like a very lucrative industry, maybe we would just, yeah, recruit away like the former CTOs, you know, like some of it is like well, an economic problem. There isn't, really important. You know, um, but, but, he, but here's the one thing I would push back on that. And what I think maybe founders can understand better from journalists is that I, I've discovered over time I don't think at least founders, CEOs, people at a high level, their companies really always know everything that's going on. I think they're often extremely focused on the business that they're, you know, the money they're trying to make, the up and to the right, looking at the looking at the dashboard, all the things that it, you need to run a successful company. And they often have very little insight into anything outside of that. And so what comes off is like journalists attacking them can leg be legitimate criticisms by employees at their company that because their company is so non-functional in a lot of different ways, they have no outlet with which to express it. And they take yeah. what I consider, and Katie's talked about this in a previous episode, the fairly nuclear option, which is talking to a person they don't really know in order to make some sort of changes. Now, that's the most generous interpretation of, of someone leaking. But I do think it is yes. the case. I do think it is the case more often than founders are willing to recognize and, and I think it is a myopia on the part of executives not really knowing what's going on in their company. And rather than assuming that there is something that they could change and address, they sort of push it off on the journalists and 
in many respects, we are just a mouthpiece for people inside companies that are that are you know airing grievances. And I think that's missed a little bit in the dialogue on the other side. Maybe. Don't you don't know, see man. that? I was that that was my most generous. Wait, wait, no, I mean snitches get stitches. <laughs> I mean no, <laughs> no. <laughs> don't talk to the journalists if you work at a tech company. But um it we do I, I do think the media criticism to just point out like doesn't acknowledge that reporters are talking to sources, right? I mean sources. Yeah. Okay. You don't believe it? Like do you believe that that's no, a of lie? Course that. when, no, it's I not mean, a lie, but it's it's I some like, dis, it's some guy who just it's somebody who just got canned or just suffered some Fair. political reversal internally Fair. and they're going and blabbing to a mouthpiece and you're presenting that as if that's fact and it just isn't. It isn't the entire picture. And I look and I I'm as postmodern as the next guy and I realize there's no capital T truth in in human literature here, but you're no, you're just getting is. You're just getting well. You're just getting a hyper skewed view of the, of of what's going on, and and that's and, fair. And again, and, fair. and you know how you throw like, like fact checking has value. To be clear, again, I've 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 written fact check pieces before. It, it does have some value, but the way to cheat in journalism is not to like lie and make things up. That's like that's too easy to catch and too dumb. It's the framing of the story. It's who you choose to quote and who you choose not to quote. You know, it, there's all these various tricks you can play to give fact check truth a certain slant. And that appears in the world as truth. And the average layman has no way to cross-check that because they're not insiders, right? I agree 100% with what you just said. Yeah. Yeah. That said, I just think that cynically, the anti-media crowd is intentionally making the media worse by depriving their own voices to the media. And that's only pushing them closer to employee sources. Not Part of the reason that the public likes these stories is because there's clearly more appetite to understand counter narratives of what's going on, like you, you think so? Actually, I disagree. I, I think the whole negative tinge towards tech it, it actually sours people, and they would ra- they'd rather hear I don't know the occasional positive story about it. There's a reason Twitter's so negative. I mean, that's what travels. Yeah. Like if it bleeds, you're, it you're, leads. Spo- you're supposed to elevate the discourse here, Mr. Journalist. I am and- trying, but I can't. I mean, I honestly can do. I I feel like yes, mm. I that's where a Substack's to advantage. But really, it's just like having excess profits. I mean, that's why. Mm. Media was great in some ways before because they were so profitable that yeah. they could put values above profits. Yeah, now people, now yeah. they're squeezed. Yeah, people forget newspapers actually used to make a lot of money. Right, <laughs> you look at the financials of newspapers up through like the eighties and nineties. Not and because of like the news stories guys. though; it was because no, of, of course you know, not. Yeah, it was yeah. like you know the bullshit stories in the back of the paper. Wait, sorry, we'll let you go. But now this. Well, hold reason, on, let me, can I can, oh, can yeah. I make one confessional? Can we go into confessional mode yes, here for a second? Okay. Something. Not that many people probably know about me. You know what my first job was in high school? In high school, like my first W two, like actual paycheck I got. Did you throw out newspapers or something? What? Uh, you got sort a W two for that? I worked. I worked on a city desk on a newspaper. Oh, I was. Wow. I was. My first actual paying job was a journalist. I was at the Sun Sentinel as a news intern on the city desk, and I'd go around and report stories on the ground. Back when you had police reporters listening to police scanner and they'd hear about the shooting, go racing off. Back before the internet, and then. The job after that was Miami Herald, actually, throughout the senior year of high school. And then I originally picked my college based on journalism programs, and the whole plan was coming to a journalist. There's a whole sequence of events how I ended up on the STEM side instead. But that was my first actual paying job. There, now you know my secret, Eric. And, and now you're full of resentment against... Uh, That's no, right. Um, yes. I was actually... Yeah, what's your, what's was your like, rosebud moment? Sentinel one like, time, actually. What... what Sorry. Well, I, I was gonna ask, like, what's your what's your moment that that turned you against journalism? Like, was there like a crusty reporter, like in the Miami Herald, who was just no. like, "You're never gonna make it, kid." Oh no, 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 no. The, the experience is actually super positive. I think one thing I think tech doesn't realize, like back in the golden age of journalism, like a, a newsroom. And I'm, I'm sure you've had this experience. You probably worked at a Bloomberg. Maybe I worked at the Sun Sun at one point. Oh, uh, did you really? Or yeah, as yeah. an intern. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And like the, 
the newsroom used to be an exciting place to be, right? Because again, there was no internet, right? Like shit happened, right? And the people who knew about it were sitting right there next to you. Right. Some guy would literally run out to report on a thing. And there was this feeling of you were in the center. It almost felt like a trading floor. It felt like this buzzy center of action. And you were part of recording the realities of life. And it was kind of very exciting. And that's that's kind of not journalism anymore. Well, I guess the New York Times is probably that way if you're actually sitting inside the newsroom. But um, but things have changed a lot. Now it's now it's tweets and substacks. Yeah. Do you feel like in the world there's a lot we don't know? Like, do you feel like there's a lot that needs to be uncovered, or yes. you think fundamentally we're uncovering most of it? Who's we? The journalists? Or just the world? Like, do you think the world is sufficiently surfacing? secret facts no, no, of to the degree I mean, that's desirable. I mean, that's why I wrote Chaos Monkeys, right? Because I, I felt tech was so interesting and it was being so badly reported. Someone needed to write the book that like 100 years from now, people were going to ask, like, what happened when humans like ported their brains online? Like, what was it like? And I felt in a, you know, in obviously the completely narcissistic way that writers operate that, okay, I'm going to go write at least one of those I thought you were books. only a narcissist on Twitter. Isn't that <laughs> what you did? Just, I, I, yeah. I feel like you're not being very consistent. Um, <laughs> well, the, 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 the artist temperament is a difficult one. Artists are terrible people by and large, as you probably know. Um, yeah. My narcissism well. contains multitudes. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for coming on. Sure. I feel like that's a great place uh, to end it. As long as, unless there's a last word, you really, I feel like... I pushed you a little, so if you you're you're free to say anything you want. No, no. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Tom. Thanks. Thanks, Antonio. Goodbye. Silicon Valley. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.